Welcome to the Well-Nurtured Brain, where we delve into the exciting world of brain health. Every episode, we bring the latest research and expert insights on mental and neurological health and offer practical tips and strategies on how to nurture your brain and optimize its function. From mental wellness to neurological health, we'll cover it all so you can become skilled in the care and feeding of the most important organ in your body, the one that makes you you, your brain. Hello, and welcome to episode eight of The Well-Nurtured Brain. I'm your host, Dr. Pamela Hutchison. I am a naturopathic physician with over 20 years of experience helping people with neurological and mental health concerns live healthy lives. Full disclosure, I started this episode intending it to be one episode, but as I started moving through this, I decided this needs to be a two-part episode. I'm really excited about what we're talking about today, so much so that I've extended it to two parts because I think it's super important, especially in the Western world, for us to be talking about this. We're talking about ultra-processed food. We're going to get deep into what that actually means in a few moments here. The Coles Notes version of this is that ultra-processed food is basically food that has been, you guessed it, ultra-processed. And we're getting a lot of data now about how ultra-processed foods are probably problematic for our bodies, our brains, and our moods. And so we're going to get into that today. We're going to talk about what they are, and we're going to get into some of the research that is showing us signals, things to pay attention to as consumers out there in the world, as people who want to have healthy brains, things that we want to pay attention to around these ultra-processed foods and how they affect our own brains and our own bodies. And then in episode two, I'm going to take you through some tools on how to identify and reduce ultra-processed foods in your life and explore a little bit about the food science and engineering that goes into ultra-processed foods and why they are so yummy. So we'll get into that too. One of the criteria you need to understand to understand ultra-processed food is to understand what's called the NOVA food classification system. Yes, we are jumping right in here, folks. We're going to start with food classification systems. Bear with me. It sounds confusing at first, but it is actually quite reasonable. This food classification system was designed by the Center for Epidemiological Studies in Health and Nutrition School of Public Health at the University of Sao Paulo in Brazil. Food processing is one of the elements of criteria in the NOVA food classification system that you need to understand. So food processing is the physical, biological, and chemical processes that occur after foods are separated from nature. So after they've been harvested or killed, these processes occur after they've been harvested from nature or separated from nature, but before they're consumed or used in the preparation of dishes and meals. So what this doesn't classify is your culinary work. So let's say you take a food and you 
Like you buy some flour and you buy some yeast and you buy some salt and maybe some sugar and you decide that you're going to make some delicious bread with that. Yes, you have taken that food and you've taken it through some processes that are changing that food, but it's not a consideration within the NOVA food classification system. And it's important to say that and clarify that because I have in preparation for this podcast, I have heard some people talking about the NOVA food classification system and including culinary preparation in it. And the researchers were really clear that culinary preparation is not part of this classification. So it's the foods before they reach the preparation of dishes or meals before they are consumed. What's happened to that food? That's the Nova food classification system. And they're really interested in how much processing has happened to that food. There's four groups of food in the Nova food classification system. Group one is unprocessed or minimally processed foods. Unprocessed or natural foods, so the first half of this category, are those that are obtained from nature plants or animals or otherwise, and do not undergo any alteration. Minimally processed foods are foods that have gone through cleaning, removal of unedible parts, fractioning, grinding, drying, fermentation, pasteurization, cooling, freezing, or other processes. They are minimally processed, and these processes may subtract part of the food, but they do not add things like oils, fats, sugar, salt, or other substances from the original food. So it's just that food. Think about things like nuts and seeds where they've taken the shell away. They may have even chopped them, but what they haven't done is they haven't added fats, oils, sugars. So let's say you have raw, unprocessed almonds. So almonds that are raw and that are no longer in their shell would be considered minimally processed foods, but almonds that have been roasted and salted are not. Other examples of this might be fresh or dried herbs and spices, bulk or packaged grains like brown and white rice. It could be things like fresh or pasteurized vegetable juices. It includes eggs. It includes all the vegetables and fruits you can think of are in these classifications, lentils, chickpeas, beans, other legumes, fruits and dried fruits. So you get a sense that as long as they haven't had anything added to them, and so dried fruits sometimes do have other things added to them, and that would move them actually out of this category. So it's really pretty strict. Dried fruits would have to be not with preservatives added to be minimally processed foods. So this group of foods is the foods that in dietary guidelines we're supposed to actually focus on if we are adhering to the Canada Food Guide, if we're adhering to the Brazilian Food Guide, we would be trying to get a predominance of our caloric intake or the volume of what we eat through these group one unprocessed or minimally processed foods. Group two foods are also thought of as processed culinary ingredients. These foods are oils, fats, salt, and sugar, and they are used in small amounts for seasoning, cooking, and to create culinary preparations. And as long as that's what they're being used for, and they're used in moderation, and used with natural or minimally processed foods, they contribute towards 
what gets called in the classification towards diverse and delicious diets. I love that. Diverse and delicious diets. It's true. Uh, without rendering them nutritionally unbalanced. So, you know, you have a salad, you're going to add some olive oil and some maybe apple cider vinegar, or you're going to add some other type of vinegar and you might add some salt and pepper. So those oils, fats, salt, and sugar aspects that you add into those group one foods, those are the group two foods, the processed culinary ingredients. And it's really important that they stress here that they're used in homes and restaurants to season and cook the food and make it more palatable and delicious. And I think delicious is really important part of life and food is to have delicious food as much as you can that's healthy. So in this instance, they classify these foods and they say that they are foods that as long as we're using them in moderation, not a big deal. So this could be things like olive oil and sunflower oil. It could be things like molasses or sugar, honey, maple syrup. It can be things like coconut oil, salt, coarse or mined, and things like even like lard. So things that have been rendered from animal tissues. The golden rule based on the NOVA classification system is to always prefer natural or minimally processed foods and freshly made dishes and meals to ultra-processed foods. And then we get into processed food. Group 3 processed foods are manufactured by the industry with the use of adding salt, sugar, oil, or other substances to the natural or minimally processed group 1 foods. So it's a combination of group 1 foods plus group 2 foods plus done in an, an industrial process, not at home, right? We're not talking about culinary preparation. And culinary includes restaurant. They are derived directly from foods and are recognized as versions of the original foods. So they haven't been processed to the point where you look at the ingredient list and there's a lot of weird stuff on there. You're going to be able to recognize what's on the list here. They're usually part of or a side dish to culinary preparations, and they tend to have two or three ingredients. So if you're trying to think about what this looks like in your head, here's some examples from the guidelines. Canned or bottled legumes or vegetables that have been preserved by pickling, um, lacto-fermentation, or with brine or vinegar. Tomato extract and tomato concentrates and canned tomatoes, fruits, in sugar syrup, beef jerky would count for this. This is where we get the salted or sugared nuts and seeds. So one or two ingredients, you could also see like roasted salted nuts or roasted salted seeds. Canned fish with or without added preservatives. Salted, dried, smoked, or cured meat. Coconut fat, freshly made cheeses, freshly made unpackaged bread. So these are things that have been made in an industrial setting, so in like an industrial bakery. And then fermented alcohol beverages. I would say fermented any beverage, like kombucha probably also sits in this category. So when you think about that, the group three processed foods, I think one of the important pieces of this is that everything is still recognizable. You know when you read the ingredients, you're like, I know what a lentil is, and I know what salt or brine is, or I know what sugar is. So I can read these ingredients. I can see that there's nuts and there's salt and there's maybe 
oil that's been used in the roasting process. Very few ingredients in the list, easy to understand and establish what you're eating when you're eating it. And then we get to the ultra-processed foods. If you're reading along in research, you're going to see these often listed as UPFs. Just so you know, the short form is becoming UPF for ultra-processed foods. And these are industrial formulations. These are made of entirely or mostly from substances extracted from foods. So they take out the oils, or they take out the fats, or they take out the sugar, or they take out the starch or the proteins, and then they do stuff with them, right? So they might hydrogenate the fat, or they synthesize food substrates in laboratories. They might add flavor enhancers. So these can be food substrates from organic sources, but they've been augmented in labs to be flavor enhancers or coloring or other food additives that are meant to make them not just palatable, but this word that I really find interesting, which is hyper palatable. Not just palatable and yummy. And we want delicious food. We already said that. But hyper palatable. The manufacturing techniques that get used to make these foods will be really industrial sounding. So there'll be things like extrusion, molding, pre-processing by frying. The beverages will be really processed. And group one foods, so those natural and minimally processed foods, will be a really small proportion, possibly not even recognized or in existence with these ultra-processed foods. I bet you can name a bunch of them, but, you know, when I, when I looked through this list, I thought, wow, there's, even in someone like myself, I try really hard to not eat a lot of these foods. You can just see how they creep into our lives because they're so available, and unfortunately, they're often really inexpensive. So I'm going to give you some examples here. Don't freak out if this is part of your diet. We're going to talk about how to identify these foods today. We're going to talk about the associations we're finding in the research with ultra-processed foods and depression, with ultra-processed foods and cognitive decline. When I read this list, I want you to keep in mind that everybody's eating these foods. First on the list is fatty, sweet, savory, or salty packaged snacks. That describes potato chips to a T. Full disclosure, I love potato chips. This is devastating. Things like cookies, ice cream, frozen desserts, chocolates. I know that hurts soda drinks, carbonated drinks, any kind of energy or sports drink, canned, packaged, dehydrated, instant soups, instant noodles, anything that says instant ahead of it is in this category pretty much. I can't think of anything that isn't labeled instant that isn't actually in this ultra-processed food category. Flavored sweetened yogurts and fruit yogurts, chocolate milk, sweetened juices, um, margarines and spreads, things that are pre-packaged, like prepared deli meats, prepared pre-packaged vegetables, prepared pre-packaged pizza and pasta dishes. These are like your Insta meals, chicken nuggets, fish nuggets, all of those kind of fast foody kind of things. Any animal product that is made from remnants. So think of hot dogs, think of bologna, those types of things. 
packaged breads, hamburger, and hot dog buns. So these are going to be the foods where it's like a white bun. It's got sugar. It's probably got a whole bunch of other stuff added in to make it hyper palatable and to make that hamburger hyper palatable as well or increase its hyper palatability. Baked products that have ingredients like hydrogenated vegetable fat, sugar, yeast, whey, emulsifiers, and other additives. Those handy breakfast cereal bars. This one's a little disturbing. It's infant formulas. That's a whole other discussion, and we we want to be really careful about how we talk about that one. So I'm going to leave it at that. Please don't stop giving your child who needs it infant formula based on this discussion. This is a bigger discussion. Drinks and meal replacement shakes. So, you know, in this, we have to put in a lot of the protein powders that get used in people who are trying to bulk up with their workout programs. Athletes are consuming a lot of gels and a lot of things that are ultra-processed that are not real food. And there might be some reason to do that, but we want to have informed, thoughtful considerations around this. And are there other ways that we could do this? Like, can we meet, for instance, and I'm interested in this, can we meet the needs of an athlete by using honey and maple syrup instead of rice syrup? I know that there's reasons for what's out there, but I'd be curious what else can we be doing? Pastries, cakes, and cake mixes, and then those distilled alcoholic beverages. So things like whiskey, gin, rum, vodka, where they've just done a huge amount of removal of all of the other aspects of that food to get to, basically to get to alcohol. If you want more information on what these foods are, check the show notes because I'm going to have that Nova Food Classification System linked in there so you can get right to a PDF that outlines it and gives you the same information that I've just given you. I really appreciate this way of looking at foods. It's different from looking at them as categories of fruits and vegetables and grains because if we just look at foods that way, we can miss some of the subtleties around, well, if I'm eating, let's say you're eating um, potato chips, you could reasonably, if you were thinking about it from the perspective of, well, getting a vegetable, you could say, well, I can get a vegetable in there. There's a vegetable in there. It's a potato. Same with like beet chips or any kind of like, quote unquote, healthy chip. They're all in ultra-processed food category, unfortunately. They are made to be hyper-palatable, and we want to separate them out as a different foodstuff because they are a different foodstuff than anything we have seen before as a human species in this world. We are eating things that didn't exist in nature. We need to be able to think about it and study it and research it. So these folks have done us a huge service by coming up with this designation because now what's happening, and this is what I'm excited about, is that we're getting to look at, well, what's the outcomes when we eat this kind of food? We know that the standard American diet, which is really high in a lot of these foods, seems to be a problem point for people's health. Well, until we have a really clear list of what these foods are and an ability to evaluate those foods in the diets of study subjects, we cannot measure what they do to our brains and our bodies. This is why this system is so valuable for researchers and clinicians 
and even for governments when they're setting policy, because we have classified now these foods, we have some parameters in which we can look at them, and we can evaluate outcomes in the population and start to make these associations between higher consumptions of ultra-processed foods and various health problems. This is what the NOVA food classification is. It's a gift to us to help us understand a very modern dietary problem. All right, so now that you have a sense of what ultra-processed food is and the NOVA food classifications, let's get into the research on ultra-processed foods and how they affect our mental health or how we think they might be affecting our mental health and our cognitive health. And we're going to start with a systematic review that was published this February uh, 2023 that took a look at ultra-processed food intake and the risk of depression. Now, before we dive in, I want to explain what a systematic review is. They are reviews that are meant to critically appraise all the relevant primary research on a specific research question. So these will evaluate and summarize the findings across all the relevant studies in a particular subject. So instead of one cohort study, like we've talked about in the past, like the Nun study, <laughs> someday I will stop talking about it. This instead is a review of all of the research that they can find that meets a certain criteria. So what they do is they identify and summarize the findings of all the evidence that they can find that meets very specific research standards and answer specific research questions. It's pretty meticulous. The folks that do these reviews are intending to help us as readers understand the general trend of the research or lack of trends in the research. In a world where we have this enormous amount of research going on, systematic reviews give us the state of knowledge in a particular topic. And so when we talk about things that are at this level, we really are looking at a lot of research being coalesced into you know, looking at the cream of the crop, the best of the best, and then what are they actually showing us? So when we, we look at these reviews, we might be getting reviews from around the world, and we're looking at the ones that fit the criteria and ideally are fitting the statistical criteria that the researchers put out there, meaning that it should be higher quality. So back in February 2023, a review was published in the Nutrition Hospitalaria. A Spanish journal. I apologize for that pronunciation. This was a, a Chinese-based systematic review, and the lead author was Ying Ri Tan. Again, my apologies for that pronunciation. So Ying Ri Tan and his colleagues or her colleagues. This is the first systematic review that has been done to really query this connection between the consumption of ultra-processed foods and the risk of depression. And they included cohort and case control and cross-sectional studies where they were looking at the exposure of ultra-processed foods and outcomes of depression, depressive symptoms, and depressive moods. So they were querying, okay, so if we look at the consumption of ultra-processed food in a population, what is the association between that and outcomes like depression or depressive symptoms or diagnosed depressive mood. And they had some statistical requirements that were made to establish whether some studies could be included or not in this. And then once they completed all of their work and identification screening, 
they had 28 studies that fit their really strict criteria. When I was looking at this study, I was amazed at the process they go through. It's quite, quite laborious, impressive, and there's a lot of people involved in it. It's pretty impressive. Now, while they were outliers, so there were studies that didn't find this, the majority of the studies that met their criteria, and as I mentioned, that's 28 studies, found a association with depression risk and consumption of ultra-processed foods. They had designed their selection of studies to rule out ones that were designed to establish the eating behaviors of already depressed folks, meaning the studies where they were querying if having major depression predisposed you to eating more ultra-processed foods. So they weren't looking at those studies. They were looking at the studies that were looking at that inverse criteria. Is there a risk for people who eat a lot of ultra-processed foods for depression? I don't think this fully controls for that pattern, because I think a lot of you out there are probably thinking, well, if you've had depression or you know folks with depression, their eating style can be pretty affected and they will often be reaching for easy things so they just don't have the energy and the wherewithal to make a healthy meal. This is a common clinical conundrum that I face with patients and we try to figure out all the time. But they were trying at least to control for that and eliminate the studies that would have been focused on identifying that pattern. A couple of interesting points here. There was this one study that I thought was pretty interesting by Gomez and Dinoso in 2020. It was a Spanish study. It was a high-quality study. It had a very low risk of bias. And they looked at university graduates using food frequency questionnaires. So they were looking at the entire diet of these folks. And they controlled for many confounders, meaning that it was a really well-controlled, well-built study with, as we know it's important, if we're all following along on brain health, All of these folks were university grads, so they knew going into this that they all had a certain level of education. And they found that higher consumptions of ultra-processed food correlated really strongly with the risk of development of major depression during the follow-up period of these studies. Pretty interesting. There was some other studies, though, that didn't find correlation. So when they look at the 28 studies that were included in the review, 21 found that consumption of ultra-processed food was associated with depression or depressive symptoms. So that equates to 75% of the studies that met the researchers' criteria for this connection. This is the only systematic review that I could find right now that looks specifically at depression and depressed mood alone and outcomes related to ultra-processed foods. It's certainly reason to pause I think it's reason to pause and think about ultra-processed foods and how they might be affecting or contributing to the population's mood states. And again, I want to just stress that this doesn't mean that we're blaming it all on ultra-processed foods at all. As a naturopathic physician, I have to stress that this is a part of the picture, not the whole picture. And that level of complexity and subtlety is actually a real strength of what I do because we're trained to look at the whole person. We're trained to look at the biopsychosocial elements of this person's life. Which means like we're looking at how is this person eating or last time in the podcast we were talking about people's experiences of loneliness that gets looked at. But there's lots of other things, right? How much are you exercising? How much social media are you consuming? Or what's your sleep like? These are all things that we can look at as naturopathic physicians in our longer visits and say, hey, we got a bunch of stuff that we can work on that contributes to the overall state 
I think that's one of the lovely things about working with naturopathic physicians for a variety of health concerns, but especially mental and neurological health concerns. Another systematic review by Melissa Lane and colleagues published in 2022 in the journal Nutrients took a broader look at ultra-processed foods and mental health disorders more generally, so not just looking at depression. And they included in their review 17 studies, and they found what's interesting is that they found a dose-dependent relationship, meaning that the more these folks reported in this group of studies, the more that the subjects reported consumption of ultra-processed foods, the more likely it was that the subjects were also reporting depression or anxiety symptoms. And then within there, a meta-analysis of prospective studies, so where they follow subjects in a cohort over time, they found a greater intake of ultra-processed food was associated with an increased risk of subsequent major depressive disorder, and that was about a 22% increased risk of subsequent major depressive disorder. So it looks like the abundance of studies points towards an increased risk of mental health challenges like depression and anxiety as consumption of ultra-processed food increases. But what about neurodegeneration? What about cognitive decline? Maybe there's some data there. And this gets us to the 2023 JAMA neurology study by Natalie Gomez-Gonclaves. Again, I apologize for my pronunciation of Spanish names and colleagues. This one got a lot of popular press, and you'll see why. And we're going to do a little math to help you understand this, because it it's a bit eye-opening and it's helpful to get a sense of what this looks like. And this is why we do part two, really. When you get to this, you're going to see, oh, I see why Dr. Pam wants part two. These folks wanted to investigate the association of ultra-processed food consumption and cognitive decline. And they did so in a specific Brazilian population. So the folks who have been listening along know that as soon as I say that, that means that there's some limitations to the study. And in this case, we're not all Brazilian and we don't all live the Brazilian lifestyle. Nevertheless, the findings hit the press because they were remarkable. And I'll get to why. So first of all, to the study, the participants in this cohort, there was 10,775 people. So just under 11,000 people that were members of the Brazilian Longitudinal Study on Adult Health. And these folks were public servants. And when they were enrolled, they did not have dementia. So they assessed them to be sure that these people didn't already have dementia at the start of the study. The mean age was 51 with a range of, of ages from 35 to 74 in the study. 55% were female, 53% were white, and 57% had a college degree. And they were living in six different cities in Brazil. And they did the baseline food frequency questionnaires and cognitive assessments to establish what that person was eating and how they were cognitively, and excluded people who were taking meds that would affect their cognition. And they excluded folks who were eating an excess of calories or a deficiency of calories at the beginning. And then they followed these folks over time. On average, eight years. And they repeated the cognitive assessments and food frequency questionnaires through that time. They quantified the daily ultra-processed food consumption in these folks as a percentage of the total energy intake of their diet. And then they split them into quarters or quartiles, four groups, 
based on this data. So remember the quintiles and quartiles of leafy green consumption, this is similar. This is the quartiles of ultra-processed food consumption. And these folks, the ones that were in the quartile with the highest percentage of their energy consumption in the form of ultra-processed foods showed a 28% faster global cognitive decline, so globally, through multiple measures, and a 25% faster rate of executive function decline. So that's planning and ordering tasks and so forth. When compared to people who were consuming the lowest quartile of consumption. So people with the highest quartile were shown to have 28% faster global cognitive decline and 25% faster executive function decline than those that were in the lowest quartile of consumption. The cohort was interesting because it was pretty ethnically diverse. It was well-weighted between male and female subjects, and it had a decent age distribution with that average age, as I mentioned, of 51. So it was pretty reflective of an ethnically diverse population of people living in Brazil who are middle-aged. I'm middle-aged, although I'm not Brazilian. This makes me pay attention because people that they studied in this study are kind of like me. So how much ultra-processed food was the highest quartile eating? You must be wondering, right? Well, it amounted to about 20% of their total caloric intake. So to put this in perspective, I'm going to do some math. So if you have a 2,000-calorie diet, which is could be average, could be a bit low for some people, could be maybe a bit high for some people, though not likely, depends on your activity levels. But if you have a 2,000-calorie diet and you eat 20% of your calories as ultra-processed food, that amounts to 400 calories per day as ultra-processed food. So what would that look like in terms of something that you could relate to? Well, I love potato chips, as I've admitted and confessed earlier. And so I wonder, well, how many potato chips would I have to eat to get into that highest quartile? And it's not too far off of the Lay's classic grab portion size. So that's like the portion that you would get if you were buying a small bag of potato chips. It's a 66-gram bag, and it is 370 calories. So one bag of Lay's classic grab-sized portion potato chips gets you pretty darn close to that highest quintile. And then I thought, oh, well, what about Doritos? I know folks love Doritos, and I think Doritos were honestly made by an evil genius, someone who was using their powers for evil, because <laughs> they're so good, and they are so ultra-processed. And I think people do get like just such a dopamine hit from Doritos. So Doritos come in different sizes, but I looked at a 48-gram grab bag size. And they have about 240 calories per bag. So it's a smaller bag size, which explains some of the reduction in calories. But you can see for chip or Dorito lovers, it would not be hard to get close to, if not in that highest quartile, by buying a family-sized bag of chips and eating uncontrolled portions. Super easy to get there. And just keep in mind, these foods are specifically designed to be hyper-palatable. It's why you find it hard to stop at just one or just some. They've done that on purpose. Hence, I think there's some evil geniuses behind this. So after reviewing this data and looking at these numbers, I thought, ugh, I can't leave these folks with just 
ultra-processed foods are bad, don't eat them, because we actually live in a world where these foods are highly available, they're very convenient, and sometimes it's even hard to recognize or realize that they are a regular feature of your diet, and they've become just so ordinary in Western culture, which is why in two weeks I'm going to dive into tools. We're going to have tools on how to identify these foods, and we'll explore a bit further why they might be creating the health risks we discussed today, why they are so yummy, and also look at some tools on how to reduce them in your personal diet. I'm really looking forward to sharing this info with you. I'm personally invested in understanding this. As I mentioned, I'm definitely reflected in that middle-aged study on cognitive decline, so that's some motivation right there. But also just, this is a common challenge for my patients, and I'm really invested in brain health in general, and I really want to walk the walk and help patients walk that same walk with me. So I am really looking forward to this next episode because I think it's going to be relevant and important. So thank you so much for listening today. I hope that understanding the NOVA food classification system, why it exists, and looking at these studies and understanding the risks for mental health, depression, and cognitive decline with increased consumption of ultra-processed food has been helpful and thought-provoking for you. I'm going to see you in two weeks, and we're going to finish off this ultra-processed food discussion. Until then, please remember, be kind to your mind. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Well-Nurtured Brain. If you enjoyed this episode, remember to subscribe and share this podcast. Spread the word about brain health to your friends and family. They'll thank you. The content of this podcast is not intended as a substitute for medical advice, nor should it be considered as such. If something discussed today seems applicable to you, please seek the assistance of an appropriately licensed healthcare professional. Thanks again for listening.